All right, here we are back again in Acts chapter 2. We're at the end of that chapter. You might want to turn your Bibles to that place. We're going to be looking at the church this morning. What is the church? What's it for? What place should it have in your life? Should a Christian have a certain disposition toward the church? Or is it sort of a take it or leave it kind of thing that we can be involved or not be involved, doesn't really matter, it's totally up to us. So this morning we're going to look at this short passage in the book of Acts, short but very rich, very rich in content. It's a picture of the first Christian church in the days of the apostles. It's a unique time and as we said earlier on in our study, not everything that happens in the book of Acts is normative, but many things are, many things are. By normative, I mean things that we should expect or things that we should seek or things we should regard as commands that we take responsibility to follow. Remember, Acts is a book of transitions and it was the age of the apostles, which was a unique time with unique gifts, which Paul calls foundational gifts for the church. So those aren't normative. Yet, there is so much to learn from this infant church and the impact that Christ and the indwelling spirit had on these first Christians. There is much to imitate here, much for us to learn from. Things went very well when that church was formed on the day of Pentecost. The church was unified and Christ was honored in every way that he himself would desire to be honored. They were submissive to the word of God, they were single-minded in their purpose, and they were committed to love one another. I've met some Christians who who almost carry a negative view of the text we're going to look at today. It's like too good. Uh, It didn't last. Maybe it was a honeymoon period. That's the way people talk about it. And the Jerusalem church ended up poor and in need of a lot of help. But I don't think anybody can objectively believe that Luke intended this portrait of the first church to be negative. He wrote this decades after it happened, and he's not painting a rose-colored picture of those times. He's not presenting people who lived in an unreal way, but rather a people who lived in the most real way that human beings can live in a proper relationship to Christ and to one another. So yeah, it's positive. It's very positive. And yes, it's very early. So there's kind of an enthusiasm that led people to a lifestyle that is hard to maintain. But by the time we get to Acts chapter 5 and 6, we see that things starting to crack a little bit and some sin appearing in the church. The first church was not ideal and nobody's claiming that it was. And Paul's letters certainly reflect all kinds of problems that churches had in the early decades and still have today. We all have those problems today. So sure, Acts chapter 2 is very early. There is a bloom of excitement and joy and living for Jesus in a manner very different from the first century Judaism that all of these people were involved with and had grown up in. So Luke and the Apostle Paul were were not even Christians yet during this time. This is so early. But clearly Luke's interviews with those who did experience this time and remembered it well thought of it as a wonderful beginning and only had good things to say about it. So it was Christianity at its best And Luke doesn't tell us about it so we can sneer at it and say it was unrealistic. Instead, he presents a model of how things can be and how they should be if we are following the Lord in the way that he wants us to. Okay, another problem is that um, I think too much attention is paid to the Pentecost event, which was unique. And uh, instead of the post-Pentecost lifestyle, that's what we really want to look at. 
that's the main thing that's available to all of us. That's what we want to learn from. I mean, who cares about speaking in tongues if we can live like this? I'm going to start at verse 41 of chapter 2. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's something, isn't it? What a description. You'll notice, first of all, that the apostles don't feature prominently here. They're not the main thing in view here. They're mentioned only two times, uh, once in verse 42 as the teachers, and then in verse 43 as miracle workers. All the rest is about the whole church, everybody. Uh, Verse 41, 3,000 souls. In verse 42, it's they. They refers to those 3,000 souls. Verse 43, it talks about everyone. Literally, it means every soul. In verse 44, all those who had believed. So it's about the whole congregation. It's not just about the apostles. In fact, it's mostly focused on the whole congregation. So Luke is focusing focusing our attention on community, the Christian community. The focus is not about what the apostles were doing, but what John and Jane Christian were doing. Or Simeon and Miriam Christian, as the times may have had it. I don't know. But it's about the saints. It's about the church, those who believed most of whom were baby Christians. A few of those people had walked with Jesus for years, but not very many of them. And thinking about who's in view here, who this is really about with everyday believers, one is really struck by all the action words, the verbs and the participles that appear in this section that I just read you. Continually devoting themselves, feeling a sense of awe, selling, sharing, continuing, breaking bread, taking meals together, praising, having favor. Action drives these verses. They were not passive Christians. They were active ones, living out their faith in community. And verse 42 appears to be kind of a summary statement. It shows us their their center, their primary concerns. So here are their priorities. There's four things. One is apostolic teaching. Truth is the very first thing on the list. So they prioritized content, knowledge, learning about Jesus and the doctrines of the faith. Remember, the apostles were not only witnesses of the resurrection. Even to be considered an apostle, they had to be that. But they also had to have witnessed much of what Jesus said and did during his ministry on the earth. So all these 12 men knew about the life of Christ and the teaching of Christ. And they would have had plenty of opportunities to share things that people had never heard before. So they had much to share, much to explain. The question is, where do we get the teaching of the apostles today? Well, TV, of course. I mean, I saw a guy on TV and he said he was an apostle. Nope, that's not right. You got that one wrong. You know where. It's the Bible. That's why we study it so much around here, because that's where the teaching of the apostles is found. 
I can tell you what I think or I can tell you what the apostles thought and which is more valuable, which has more weight, which is more important, which is more reliable. Well, it's what the apostles taught, right? The scriptures. So the teaching of the apostles is of first importance because you have to build a fellowship in Christ on a solid foundation and that means revealed truth, what God wants us to know. Okay, that was the first thing. The second priority was fellowship, koinonia. That word means sharing or participating in. So Christian fellowship refers to sharing in Christ in our lives together. It's living out our union in Christ as a community. So church life is a community of redeemed people. Don't miss this. Fellowship is the second thing right after sound doctrine. It's extremely important. Fellowship or participation in a church body, it just encompasses so many different things. Discipleship, friendship, mutual support, encouragement, accountability, learning to love like Jesus, helping the weak, comforting the afflicted, and certainly using your spirit-given gifts for the common good. That's right out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. To each one is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good, Paul tells us. So that's, that's right. If, if you were born from above, the Holy Spirit has not only indwelt you, but he has given you a capacity to serve the body as a whole. You're a gifted part of the whole. And the, these gifts can be all sorts of things. I was thinking of a, a list in Romans chapter 12. Let me just read you what, how Paul described this list and think of it in terms of the Christian community. Chapter 12, verse three of Romans. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. As God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So you see, you can take this gift, this capacity, and then you exercise it to make it strong, and so it becomes more and more useful to the whole, to the body. So you exercise them, you use them. And notice you have to apply yourself to them to improve them. He says, he who gives with liberality. So you might have this gift of giving. You just love to give. You're always there to meet a need. God's given you resources to do that. And there's, you can grow in how you do that. You can mature as a Christian in how you do that. The love of Christ can make that gift of giving turn to liberality, a spirit of liberality. So it means giving with an open heart or a, a generous spirit. You can have the gift, but be, be kind of a grudging giver, right? Finding fault, complaining about the people you're giving to. But if that's your gift, then growing in being selfless all the way around is what God wants to see in us. So that's the part of the growth that has to happen in your heart as well as in your desire to meet needs, you see. For example, he says, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Well, it's the same thing. You can be merciful without a lot of cheer. All right, I don't have mercy on that person. But um, 
if you do it with a full heart and full of love, it's a different thing. So you grow into that. You learn that love of Christ in applying that gift of mercy to people. Mercy is an act, but cheerfulness is a matter of the heart. So don't be resentful. God isn't merciful in a resentful way. And he is the one that is chiefly offended. So we should be merciful in the same way that he is merciful. Become like him. That's our big goal. So all the gifts have to be exercised in the fullness of a Christ-like heart. And that takes spiritual work. So listen, I'm not naive. And I've been a pastor for 30 years. So community sometimes is hard. It's just difficult. It tries the soul. It's easy to play the Christian when you don't involve yourself with people. But when you do, it can be a great task sometimes, a difficult task. But you know what? It's not an option to not be involved. Not from what scripture tells us. Charles Spurgeon once said, some Christians try to go to heaven alone in solitude. But believers are not compared to bears or lions or other animals that wander alone. Those who belong to Christ are sheep in this respect that they love to get together. Sheep go in flocks and so do God's people. So you can't be a detached part of the body. That, that's a dead thing and it's not what your calling is. If only we could be a bear or a lone wolf, but we're not, we're sheep. So we are placed in a community of the redeemed and we are gifted to serve others in that community. Yikes, you mean I have to belong? People are so, I know, I know they are. So are we sometimes, aren't we? So it means sacrifice. Sometimes it means discomfort. Sometimes it means patience. It means absorbing the blows inflicted upon us by difficult people. That's not easy. And because it's not easy, we have to grow spiritually. That means learning about love and learning what Christ's love is really like and implementing that in our lives, growing it in our hearts. Fellowship involves God exposing our sin more and more so we can tackle it and then live out Christ's love towards other people more and more. So dealing with humans is a huge part of what makes us Christ-like. Paul continues in that Romans 12 passage. I didn't read the whole thing. He continues on like this in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Giving preference. I'm sorry. Serving the Lord. Verse 12. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Verse 13. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. That's all about community, that whole passage. Life in the body is the best opportunity to actually grow in these things, these gifts that God has given us, these special callings that we all have. If I can refer to Paul once again, the description of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is born out of fellowship in the body of Christ. That's what it's about. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. 
does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So listen, what you need to have to create a blessed community of believers is love, isn't it? It's that expression of love. That's what we need. Love is hard, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. It changes us and it makes us lighthouses so people can find and experience Jesus in the love that we get from him. Yeah, but I'm shy, you know, it's kind of hard for me. You know what? Shy people can love too. Look, I'm introverted by nature. That's, that's my personality. I'm an introvert. But God decided to give, gift me with something that I have to be out in front of people all the time like I am right now. So he's not playing a cruel joke on me. That's the gift he gave me. And then my naturally introverted nature has some quality to add something to that gift. And that's okay. It makes me unique. I know it takes pains to do it right. That's one thing that an introvert wants to do is do things right. And as a pastor dealing with people problems, it's not an option. So you learn and you grow into that. You grow in love to come out of yourself and relate to people in a certain way. So God uses how he made us. We exercise our gifts in a way that is uniquely ours. And he refines whatever our personality is, our gifting is, and our background he, he grows us spiritually with all of that as a part of us and that makes us who we are and, and valuable to the community. That's where our cooperation and our work is essential. You can never grow if nothing ever challenges you. So you can't be afraid of getting out there and interacting with messy people like you because we all have problems and we all need to be patient with one another and love one another and do these things for one another. So if dealing with people is not an option, if that's what God wants me to do, then I learn how to deal with people. The love of Christ guides me. Some people are introverted, and that's okay. That's a good thing. We're all different, but we can all exercise our gifts. Now, some people are wounded. They've been abused or seriously mistreated, sometimes even in a church setting. And that keeps them from participation or fellowship in the body. They have trouble trusting and they're in sort of a protective mode or sometimes bitterness is there. That's all entirely understandable. I mean, trust is really important. But I will say, too, that a situation like that, if you're wounded, is something to grow beyond. All of this applies to us, for all of us, whatever our situations are. We all have things to overcome and to grow in the Lord and serve him. We all have that responsibility. If that takes counseling and mentoring, do that. Go for it. Grow in those things. Get help. People will be there for you to love you and help you with all of that. There are infinite resources in the body and in the spirit of Christ especially and in the word of God. Infinite resources there to teach us and to grow us. There's no prison in your mind that needs to hold you back from participation, from fellowship. Okay, we've looked at verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. What follows that? It says to the breaking of bread and prayer. So there's two more things. So the Greek text actually uses the definite article there, breaking the bread. Later on he says breaking bread without the article. So some Bible teachers believe, scholars believe that um, 
this is a reference to the Lord's table, to celebrating communion together. We know that often in the early church, communion was done as part of a larger meal, the agape feast or love feast as it's called. So that's probably what's in view here, celebrating communion together. And that fits because at Pentecost, baptism was given to those 3,000 people. That's the one-time event that initiates our walk with Christ. And it would be natural for that to be followed with the ongoing celebration of the Lord's Supper, the breaking of the bread um, with them. So I think we all experience the blessing of sharing in the Lord's table together. It's always a wonderful time. It's a deep joy to be reminded of all that Christ has achieved for us through these simple signs he's given us, the bread and the cup. Finally then in verse uh, 42, it mentions prayer. You cannot pray too much. That's why we like to pray around here at our church. These are things that healthy churches do. So they paid attention to apostolic doctrine. They fellowship. They participated in ministry and in serving one another. They celebrated the Lord's table together. And they pray together and for each other. If any of that is missing in a church, it's going to be a weaker church. It will lose its vitality. So prayer is the greatest breeder of love. That growing in love and learning to serve in love, that comes out of a lot of prayer as well as self-reflection and repentance. Prayer conquers almost all our troubles and difficulties with regard to fellowship with one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wisely put it like this. He said, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the intercession of its members for one another or it collapses. I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray no matter how much trouble he causes me. His face that hitherto may have been strange and intolerable to me is transformed in intercession into a countenance of a brother for whom Christ died. The face of a forgiven sinner. That he is exactly right. You cannot hate somebody you regularly pray for and take before the throne of grace. You can't do it. It's that's cured me of any bad feelings I've ever had just praying for someone regularly. So he's right about prayer. You just can't hate someone you pray for. It's a healer. It's a humbler. And it's a fountain of love. It frees up love to flow out of you. So let's talk about how their dedication to these four things played out for this first church. These early, early Christians. Verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Well, that is awesome. Apostolic power was abundant, but that sense of awe is stated even before he talks about the miracles. So the awe was there as a part of the whole fellowship process. They were just wonderful times. They were happy, and it had the flavor within the community as though the kingdom had already come, even though they're still living in a sinful world. When they were together, it felt like a bit of the kingdom of God being in the kingdom of God. So the church is supposed to be that, a little taste of the kingdom and how our hearts are focused on the Lord and how we are with one another, all brothers and sisters in Christ. It's awesome. It was awesome. And it's still awesome when we do that. So the miracles just made it more so, a little more awesome. But you should notice that it was very specific people doing the miracles, wasn't it? Not everybody. Did you see who it said was doing the miracles? The apostles the apostles Jesus gave them special gifts to authenticate their ministry so apostles do miracles now as we move through the book of Acts we're going to find out that if the apostles lay their hands on someone they can give them 
these supernatural gifts as well like miracles and signs and wonders and things like that. They could give it to others but then it stops there. The people they give it to can't give it on to somebody else. So, so it always points directly back to the apostles as the givers of those gifts. Paul plainly says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12 that the signs of an apostle were signs and wonders and miracles. The very same words that Peter used. The same three words he used in Acts 2.22 about Jesus. So this is a minor theme in Acts but it's something to notice as we go through the book. Uh, who does miracles and um, how it's limited to the apostles and those whom the apostles lay their hands on. Miracles authenticated Jesus ministry and they also authenticate the ministry of his chosen apostles and representatives. So out of 3,000 converts all spirit baptized only the apostles are performing miracles at this stage in the church's life. And later only those they lay their hands on. Okay now verse 44 and 45. So wonderful this is the most wonderful miracle of all. All those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now that's a miracle. That's a miracle everybody participated in. The spirit of unity was so strong that human beings mattered more than possessions. They regarded each other as family. Now some people say that's communism. No it's not communism. It's, uh, it's voluntary. And they still had private property but when they saw the needs of other people as more important than their possessions they gave and sold things off to help other people. Charles Spurgeon who lived in the same city as Karl Marx and just a couple of decades after Marx created communism you know the communist manifesto Spurgeon said this in his great sermons that he preached in London talking about Acts chapter 2 here he said they were not communists they were Christians. And the difference between a communist and a Christian is this. A communist says all that is yours is mine. While a Christian says all that is mine is yours. And that is a very different thing. The one is forgetting the other is forgiving unquote. So there's Spurgeon talking about communism in the 19th century. The point is they were happy to share. Happy to share. Verse 46 is quite remarkable too. Maybe even more remarkable. Day by day continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. That's where it says breaking bread in a more general sense without the article. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. They just enjoyed each other because their love for the Lord was so strong and they all shared that love. Now these people weren't super saints. They weren't different from us. But they did know what the Lord had done for them and they put the Lord first in their lives. They were normal people with all the irritating things that normal people do that bother each other. They weren't just like some kind of you know saintly beings floating through the air or anything like that. Regular folks but their love and their joy was so great that that stuff didn't bother them that much. Those things that tick us off about other people sometimes. With all of their individuality they loved each other. How could they do that? Well it says they were of one mind. They were of one mind. That, that can't mean they all had the same opinions about every little thing or the same interests or the same taste or like the same kind of music or whatever. Of course they didn't but it does mean they all loved the same Lord and they put him first. He was the most important thing and exercising their gifts came before all of these annoying pesky differences that people have. It does mean that. Most communities are torn by 
ego, power grabs, bitterness, competitiveness, all kind, even simple clubs have all those kinds of things going on them in them. That's just human nature. But these Christians through Christ's love were able to set a lot of that kind of stuff aside and just put it in another place. They had Christ-centered relationships, Christ-centered friendships. And those friendships were not exclusive or limiting. They were expansive. Amy Carmichael, the great missionary, warned Christians about their friendship. She said, in, if in fellowship of service I seek to attach a friend to myself so that others are caused to feel unwanted, if my friendships do not draw others deeper in but are ungenerous, that is, to myself and for myself, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Well, this early church did know about Calvary love and they were expressing it. So they loved to get together and they had a very expansive view of relationships and friendships. Always room for another friend. So our affections and our friendships have to be inclusive. Another thing you should note in verse 47, it says they were praising God. They were not focused on complaining, but on praise. That's another feature of this early Christian community. They had so much to praise God for. Messiah had come. He had sent the spirit. Um, and that hasn't changed. The spirit is the same spirit today that operated in them. And we should praise him for the same things, for what Christ has accomplished, for who he is in the world, for having so much joy in fellowship and so much truth in the scriptures that we can study together. That's all the same. That hasn't changed. And then it says in verse 47, having favor with all the people. So people noticed this happy company and they only had good things to say about them. There will always be naysayers, uh, but if we are authentically living our faith, people will generally see that as a good thing. So just be real. That's so important to be real, but be real in the reality of your faith and love that you find in Christ. We live in a day when churches are Wow, they're built around image and media and being cool and imitating the culture. Inauthenticity is pervasive in our culture and that's kind of an, an infection that gets into the church. And it's been like that for decades now. But all we need to do is be real. That's it. That's how churches thrive. And by thrive, I don't mean big. Big is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But representing Jesus faithfully to one another is what I mean by thrive. Verse 48. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Those who were being saved. Saved. That's the operative word there. Saving people. That's why we exist. To represent Christ as the savior to the world. Adding to the body people who find a savior from sin. And condemnation in Jesus. The savior of the world. That's what we're about. Church is not a club. It's not a way to feel rooted in something or grounded in something outside of myself. Church is a redeemed community. That's what it is. It's a body of saved people living for God and delighting in him together. That's what church is. So let me jump back to verse 42 and just remind you of the things you need to embrace as spiritual goals. And then you can move forward in your own walk. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching. That's the Bible. And to fellowship and to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. So learn what that means for you. Study this and say, how do I fit into that? Am I continually devoting myself to these things? That's all you need to know. Priority, energy, 
consistency. That's what we're talking about. Let's make sure our church is exactly what God wants it to be. That's the responsibility of all of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for giving us the spirit which binds us all together in such a wonderful way. Thank you for the word and the spirit who together convict our hearts of our sin, helping us to set those things aside so we can love freely, so we can cultivate patience and not taking in wrongs and bearing one another's burdens and all the good things you want us to see, Lord. We love the church, but sometimes it's hard to live in it. But make us excellent members, excellent parts of the body that we're doing our function that you gave us to do in whatever our situation might be so we can glorify you and serve your people and be a light to the world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, we're gonna move into chapter three. More stuff's happening with the apostles there. God bless, we'll see you next time.